Thank you for listening to the audio podcast of the King's Crossing Church of Christ. To learn more or subscribe, please visit our website at kingscrossingcoc.com. close to the end of it now, but uh, we've looked at a lot of different facets of his life and experiences in his life. A few weeks ago, we talked about the birth of Ishmael, uh, his son through Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. We talked about the contention between Sarah and Hagar. It says that once she conceived and was able to have a child, that Hagar despised Sarah, whatever that meant, whether it was genuine hatred or just disrespect or something about her that that created tension between the two. And a while back, Hagar decided to flee because of how Sarah was treating her. And, of course, God appears to her, tells her to go back. And where we're picking up today is about 15 years after that first incident. And once again, things in Abraham's family life had started to get a good deal worse than they had been in some time. Genesis chapter 21 and verse 8 says, talking about his son Isaac, the child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac." The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. Always interesting to me to notice who gets called by name and who gets referred to by a position in life. Uh, Hagar and Ishmael always have a rough way to go. Sarah never minds invoking her own child's name and what she says. A few weeks ago when we talked about the last round where Hagar felt the need to flee for her relief, safety, whatever the cause was, I mentioned what Paul does in Galatians chapter 4, which I, I would confess feels a bit flippant to me in how he talks about the situation between Hagar and Sarah and all that Hagar and Ishmael went through. But just the same, he he pulls up and makes a contrast between these two ladies. He says that Hagar, as he explains it, kind of represents the law. Hagar represents the old law, the old covenant, uh, which was more according to human effort and obedience. And he says that Sarah and Isaac represent this new covenant in Christ, where God treats us not according to how well we get everything right, but according to his love and mercy. Uh, it's a future of, of promise, not of merit. And so thinking about this, again, sounds a bit flippant to me in thinking of Hagar's situation, but I'll point out again that in the mind of Scripture, the question looming very large is, how will God go about honoring his promise to Abraham? 
The promise that he made back in Genesis chapter 12 is still of great significance even as we move into the life of Jesus. How would God bless all inhabitants of the world through Abraham's descendants? And the way that God had chosen to do that was going to be through his legitimate son, Isaac. And so Isaac remains very important in the mind of Scripture, and that question remains important throughout Scripture. So we don't want to make too little of that aspect of the story because Scripture thinks it's very important. But just the same, I think for our purposes, it is worthy to reflect on the pain and the difficulty of what it must have been like to be Hagar and Ishmael. The occasion for this story is that Abraham threw a feast for Isaac as he was getting weaned off of breast milk and was starting to eat solid food. Now, from what we've been able to find about this culture in the ancient world, and even many places today where food is a bit more scarce, uh, normally past the age of about two, um, breastfeeding wasn't so much essential for the nutrition as it was a way of bonding with your mother. And so it was not unheard of for children to be breastfeeding up until the time they were five or six years old. We don't know how old Isaac was when he was weaned, but it wouldn't have been uncommon for them to do that a good deal longer than we do these days. But again, early on, it would have been more for the nutritional value. As things went, um, it has a lot more to do with the bonding between a mother and her child. So when you think about something, when you have a young child, something that's been a key part of their life for all of their existence, where all of a sudden that activity is going to cease, you can imagine it would be psychologically difficult for them. It could be emotionally difficult for them now that all of a sudden you're not going to be nursing anymore. And so what we see in Abraham, I believe, is the action of a very tender father. One of the ways they could help their children along was that they made a big party about it. Guess what? Now we're only going to eat big boy foods. And so he threw a really big feast to help his son Isaac transition into boyhood out of babyhood. We're just looking at the actions of a kind and a tender father trying to help his child to grow, inviting all of his family to join in that process. At this point, we don't know exactly how old Ishmael was. He's born when Abraham is about 86. And so this would make him, you know, somewhere 14, 15, a little older than that, but he's a teenager at this point, and it says that he started mocking. We don't know whether he's just scoffing in the background or whether he's actively bullying Isaac, but it's clear Sarah is not having any of it, not any of it. She says they've got to go. It was a condition in the ancient world that if you had someone who was a slave, you could free that slave. And that's what Sarah calls on Abraham to do. You know, it's time to let them go. And what frankly looks to me like a bit of a sinister move, she gave them their freedom right out into the wilderness. One of the conditions as a slave is that if you were freed, if formerly you had been connected enough to the family where you were to be viewed as a sort of heir to the family, that you would benefit from the family inheritance, being a freed slave meant you were cut off from the inheritance, So that's part of what Sarah is accomplishing when she says, this slave woman's kid is not going to have any part of my son's inheritance. Let's give them their freedom. It's a bit twisted in my mind. And so Abraham is deeply bothered as he should have been. I don't know if you've ever had that situation in your life, but it's really disheartening when you've got two people that you care about, that it's like no matter what you do to help everybody get along, they just won't like each other. You ever been in the middle of one of those before? Two people, 
Maybe you say there's good things about both of them, but sometimes it's the case that two people just can't seem to get past whatever their differences are. And I think Abraham must have felt caught between a rock and a hard place. How in the world could I do the thing that Sarah is asking me to do? This is the place where God intervenes and assures Abraham, yes, it's rough. I know you don't want to. I'm going to take care of him. He's going to grow up. He's going to become a nation. It's, it's going to be okay. I'm going to care for him. It's going to be all right. So with that assurance from God, Abraham packs them up with provisions, and he sends them out into the wilderness. This is the wilderness of an area called Beersheba, and this is a pretty dry and arid place. This is closer to the direction where Hagar would have come from. She's Egyptian, and so this is moving them further to the south. But at the same time, there was no expectation that a woman and a child could easily make this journey on their own. And so he packs them up with provisions, and it isn't too long until they reach the end of those provisions. And the way that this wilderness is, when your water runs out, soon your life is going to run out. Once your water supply is finished, it means that you also are finished. This is a hopeless circumstance. And so the day came where this dwindling water supply is finally reduced to that last drop. I imagine she probably gave it to him. She's got nothing left for herself or for her child. And here in the desert, they're going to die a miserable death of at least heat exhaustion and water deprivation and however, I don't know the right way to watch your child pass, but she just decided she couldn't bear to see it. And so the little relief she could offer him was that she placed him under a bush, and she went off by herself. She's laid him on the ground. She herself kind of collapses to her knees and begins sobbing. This is a hard passage to look at and to think about. And so she fell to the ground, and God appears in her time of need. It says in verse 17 of Genesis 21, God heard the boy crying, and the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's the matter, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift up the boy, take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And it kind of gives us the rest of the story. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Now, I for one would not wish Hagar and Ishmael's path or experiences on anyone but I'm thankful to know that God gave them a better outcome and a better destination than they would have probably received by their own means. Even reflecting on Hagar's situation in life, let's not forget that the way she came to Abraham's family was she was an Egyptian, and as Abraham leaves with his party out of Egypt, they gave them possessions and slaves. So even in her own country, she's not a person of high standing, right? For her you know, fellow Egyptians to give her off as a slave says she probably didn't have a great life in Egypt. We've seen enough of her experiences in Abraham's family to know it wasn't such a great life for her there either. But the place that she's ended up, harsh though the environment might have been, they did manage to survive and to thrive. She's not 
stuck in Egypt in a low position. She's no longer a slave to this guy's family, but she and her son are able to actually build a life together. I like to think that this is the case for so many of us, where maybe you reach a point in your life that feels like rock bottom, and once we open ourselves up to God and what he can do, things start looking up. Suddenly, God starts creating new possibilities in new ways where we didn't see a way there. I love if you watch the movement of this story, what you see is a gradual collapse where she's laid down her son and she's dropped to her knees and she begins to weep and you see her emotionally just kind of hitting the ground and then what God says to her is, stand up, pick the boy up by the hand, go over here to the water, I'm going to do bigger things. He, he, he's uplifting, he's encouraging. I love the movement from down to suddenly God shows up and we have new possibilities. Things begin to improve. God took a terrible situation and made it better for them. What I wanted to do for a few minutes with you today is I wanted to go a completely different direction in how I'm kind of dealing with this passage. I do think there are some theological angles on this that we've already talked about a little bit, at least what Paul does in Galatians. We can reflect on the goodness and providence of God. But if you don't mind, what I want to do this morning is I want to go a really, really pragmatic direction in how we reflect on this story. I don't know about you, but when I look at what happened with Abraham, with Sarah, with Hagar, with Ishmael and Isaac, I just look at the situation and say, I really wish someone somewhere would have tried harder to make things work out. Why did that whole situation become necessary? I'm not saying that God didn't find a way to weave it all together for his glory. You know, this is very much a Romans 8.28 thing. They did a bunch of awful stuff and God found a way to make something good out of it. But it wasn't anything they did that led to something being good. When I reflect on Abraham's family in conflict, I'm sure that all of us have situations in our lives where we experience conflict, tension, and difficulty. It might be in your marriage. It might be between you and your children or your grandchildren. It could be between you and your extended family, or it may be more of a workplace or a school thing, but there are probably people in your life who are being affected just as you are being affected by conflict and bitterness and distrust. All of us have different styles in how we tend to approach conflict in our lives. There are some people who, when they see a problem, they just want to tackle it head on, full force, get it on the table, and let's duke it out. There are people like me who will do anything possible to avoid having an uncomfortable conversation. I don't know about you. I'm a big conflict avoider myself. It's hard for me to push myself into an uncomfortable conversation. We all respond to these things in different ways, but what I wanted to do, again, reflecting on the dynamics in their family, I would invite you just to think about the connections and the relationships in your life and to ask whether maybe there's a situation you could actually do something about to make things a little bit better. I'm going to share with you this morning a couple of different things you might could try that I believe could possibly uh, help with this. Uh, back a couple of months ago on Wednesday nights, I have a, I have a Wednesday uh, streaming class every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on both our Facebook and our uh, YouTube pages, but we did a study for a while of relationships. If you were tuning in for that class, some of this you've probably heard before, but I think sometimes good ideas bear repeating, and so if you've heard this before, you'll have to pardon me, but... I hope these will be some principles that might be uh, helpful to you. Uh, to begin with, if we want to try and heal disconnects in our life, it's important that we communicate more and that we communicate more clearly with each other. 
If you think about you and one of your family members, they might walk into the house and you could say, hey, how was your day? And they might just say, okay. How are you doing today? Yeah, fine. It's hard, to, it's hard to know what to do with that. Or maybe we're a little shorter. How are you feeling? Are we okay? I'm irritated at you. You know, give me, give me a little more to work with, right? It helps for us to have information to know how to deal with problems that we have. So the truth is that each of us has multiple aspects to who we are as a person. So when you're going to describe yourself or your frustrations, your blessings, or your sorrows, sometimes it can be helpful to communicate in terms of these different aspects of, of who you are. So for example, all of us are physical beings, aren't we? One of the things you might talk about is your physical body, your health, how you're feeling, whether you're sleepy or you're feeling energized. You have a physical self. You have an intellectual self. All of us have some need to be engaged with some sorts of, of ideas that are stimulating or interesting to us. You have an emotional side of yourself. Isn't it often the case that sometimes you can get yourself to believe something intellectually before you can get your emotions to fully go there? It's hard sometimes, isn't it? I know this is what I should be thinking, but this is still how I feel. We have emotional aspects to ourselves. All of us, even the introverts, we all need some sorts of social dynamics. Our social connections, other people, experiences, memories, these are all the things that give our lives meaning. And then, of course, we all have an aspect of ourselves that is deeply spiritual. I don't believe I have to convince you of that because you chose to be here this morning. You know that there's something within you that longs for the bigger picture, the higher power, something beyond yourself to connect your life to. And so we all have these different aspects of ourselves. If you're struggling to connect with a person in your life, sometimes it might be helpful to kind of briefly run through parts of that list as you try and diagnose what's going on. Hey, I can tell something's not great with you today, but are you hurting somewhere? Are you feeling sore? Are you feeling tired? We can talk about the physical. Uh, is there something you're just thinking about that's, that's bothering you? Um, has someone done something to make you feel sad? Has something happened to you that's making you feel sad and depressed? Um, are you having any friends in your life right now that you're connecting with? Um, how are things going right now between you and God? When you're praying right now, what do your prayers sound like? Are you praying at all? What about you and God's connection? It can be helpful to diagnose things. And in fact, even if you're having a good day, it can be helpful to use these kinds of lenses to help you expound on how things are going in your life. I'm having a really good day. Well, what was so good about it? Well, I saw someone I hadn't seen in a long time, and it makes me feel happy to know that things are going well in their life. Um, I, saw, I heard something in Bible class yesterday at church that I've just continued to think about, and it made me a little braver today in how I tackled something at work. Or I've just spent the whole day looking forward to this evening when those mosquitoes have finally died down enough that we can go on a walk. Feels good to get some fresh air. But there's a lot of different ways we can expound on these aspects of ourselves to get a clearer picture of who we're dealing with. Proactive communication, proactive connections help us avoid those deeper conflicts. But in the occasion where we do have conflict, I want to talk about something you can use to talk about what's bothering you that hopefully leads to some kind of a better resolution. Uh, I say often in, in counseling situations, the only real problems you have in your family are the ones you won't talk about. Does that make sense? The only real problems you've got are the ones you won't talk about. If we're at least trying to work through it and articulating it and acknowledging there's an elephant in the room, we can deal with the elephant. You got a real problem if you won't say anything about what the actual problem is. 
But uh, this method I've had suggested to me is a thing they would call an ABC approach to talking about our problems. When we talk, a lot of times we make one of a couple of different mistakes. One is that sometimes when we're bothered by something, we just start off too harsh. You ever done that to someone where you're having a bad day and they walk in the door and they don't even know it's coming and just, bam, I can't believe you, blah, 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 blah. Sometimes we do that. A harsh start doesn't usually get us anywhere. The other thing we have to be careful about is when you have a conflict with another person, even if you really hate what they did in their actions, it's never helpful to try and tell another person what their motive was for what they did. You just did that because you don't care about this or that. You just did that because you wanted this and that. And it's like, well, you don't really know. Even if you were guessing right, you don't know. And so it's helpful to stay at the level of actions. But what I've come across, and i found this to be very useful, is if you're having something that's really bothering you, you need to bring up to someone, you can start by talking about the action affecting you. Again, not telling them why they're doing it, just tell them what's happening. I notice this keeps happening. Here's the action that I need to address. A second part of that is to say, because of that action, this is what it's like to be me. When that happens, this is how I find myself responding to it. I don't know why you're doing it. I don't know what your motive is. But when you do it, this is how I feel. This is what's going on inside my head. This is what it's like to be me. And this is also followed by an important step, which is I've addressed that there is a problem, but here is a change I would really like to see happen. Here's something you could do different. Here's something we could do different. And this change would probably make me feel better about it or help me not make such a big deal of it. So to put it all in one sentence, you could say, whenever you do this, it makes me feel this. I would appreciate if you would do this other thing. So for example... Whenever I see your dirty clothes in the middle of the floor, it makes me feel like you don't value how hard I work to try and get this room cleaned up. I would appreciate if, instead, you would put them in the dirty clothes hamper. That's kind of a simple way you could address that. When I notice that you've been going out with your coworkers for lots of meals, and then we don't have money left in the budget for us to go to a nice dinner, I feel like I'm not cherished enough by you. I would appreciate if we could at least set some kind of expectation and budget on how much you're going to do that so that we still have room for us to do something special in our lives. And again, in that method, the benefit is it's not an accusation, it's a description and a suggestion. Something you might could try. And again, I wouldn't say this is the primary thrust of this passage, but it just seems to me like a good point to pause and say, okay, most of us are not in a situation where the person I'm close to, I'm thinking about sending into the desert with just a little canteen of water, right? Like most of us aren't at that point. But I wonder in your life where you're hanging on to conflict and struggle and there's something that you really could work through that would be good for you, that would be good for that person, and certainly for your family. I would simply remind us that when it comes to family, when it comes to the relationships in your life, building is always better than winning. Building is better than winning. I want to see you strengthened and encouraged. I want to see myself get lifted up and edified. I want to see our family getting closer and stronger and making more memories together that we enjoy. When I'm focused on winning, I'm focused on getting the upper hand, and the sad truth is there's no way you can bring another person down 
without somehow also bringing yourself down. You know, for you to say something really awful about your spouse to humiliate them, in some way you also cheapen your own soul and lessen your own status in the eyes of anyone who is watching or listening. We need to be people in the business of collaborating, building each other up, working through our differences, because building up is the way of Christ. Tearing down is not what Christ has come to do to us. Thinking about the effect of God showing up in the wilderness, when she was at a low point, God didn't kick her. God showed up, and because God showed up, her life started getting better. How can we build each other up? I hope you'll dwell on that, think about that. Something that we do here every week is that we set aside a time where if there's someone here that needs prayer from the church or if you'd like to meet individually with one of our elders scattered throughout the room, um, we're happy to pray with you and for you. We're happy for you to come forward if there's a greater need that you'd like to place before the church or if you want to be baptized today into Christ to start a new life in Christ. We'd love to study with you about that and the meaning of that. Uh, It's also the case that we have a little QR code you can scan. It's also printed on your bulletin, so even if you don't do it right now, later this week, you think of something you'd like us to know, you can reach out to us directly. We read those. We get messages every week. We'd be happy to hear from you. But whatever your needs are this morning, uh, we'd love to try and help you with those. We invite you to come and talk to us while together we stand and sing.